Well, good morning, church. I hope uh, you are experiencing God's grace today and able to rejoice in all that he has done for us and is doing in our life. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Esther. As you may know, we started our study on uh, Esther last week as we are considering how God rules uh, and does so often silently. Uh, rules when uh, things look difficult and troubling and we can't see his hands. Yet the book of Esther shows us God's fingerprints everywhere, even though his, his rule seems hidden at times. And so I think and hope and trust that it will be a great encouragement to us as we consider this wonderful little book here. And so here we find ourselves in Esther chapter 1 this morning, and we are beginning in verse 9. Hear now the word of God. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely. To look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshana, Sethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meriz, Marcina, and Memukan the seven princes of Persia and Media who, sat, who saw the king's face and sat, in the king's, sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, that it, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memekon said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, for the king's be- queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded King Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all the women will give honor to their husbands high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memekon proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script, and to every people in his own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Our Father, we're thankful for your word this morning. we uh, trust that you will want to speak to us through it. We're thankful that even already we've had a time to sing your praise and to proclaim the, the vast blessings you have bestowed upon us and hear from your word and the 
book of Romans declaring how great is your counsel and your wisdom and that no, no one knows the mind of our great God for he is far above us all. And now we have the great honor once again to sit uh, together even though separated and to consider your word that you've given to us to allow you to speak to us through your Holy Spirit. And I, I pray that we would do so with great earnestness and great anticipation this morning that you would help us, Father, to focus in our, our minds and our hearts this morning and that you would indeed help us to see how you rule and reign even in our day as we consider your reign from this book. We are delighted to do so. So thrilled to be able to be uh, with my church today, Father. I'm so thrilled to be able to consider your word with them. And we ask for your many blessings upon us, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I listened recently to a pastor tell a story of a member of his church named Charlie, who was sentenced to four years in prison for financial crimes. Uh, this, uh, of course, was a great trial for Charlie, and yet uh, this bondage in prison actually led to his freedom. For the very first night that he was imprisoned, he called his sister, who shared with him the gospel, and explained to her brother that Christ has come to die for sin and to save sinners, and that he has paid the penalty for sinners upon the cross, and then he has risen victoriously from the dead that we might have eternal life, and that if Charlie would surrender his life to Jesus in faith, that he too would be saved by Christ. And so when Charlie hung up the phone with tears running down his cheeks, he did just that. Charlie placed his faith in Jesus as his Savior, and he would testify that the very first night he spent behind bars was the very first night he was free. And that morning came, and, and uh, Charlie, of course, uh, somewhat timid, not sure what the day would bring, and his first day in prison was eating breakfast uh, alone, and he got out his Bible, and for the first time, he, he opened it and, and began to read his Bible as he ate breakfast. At this, one of the inmates approached Charlie, seeing him read his Bible, and said to him, we should start a Bible study. Well, Charlie, of course, was pleasantly surprised at the inter- interaction, and he said, you should, and, and I, I'm, I'll be thrilled to attend that Bible study. But the inmate said to him, no, you need to lead it. And Charlie, Charlie said, well, I, don't, I don't know anything about the Bible. In fact, this, this is the first time I'm reading the Bible. I can't lead a Bible study. And so they kind of left it at that. Well, after supper that very day, the same inmate approached Charlie and said, it's time for our Bible study. We are all waiting for you. And he uh, took Charlie, and uh, they went to one of the rooms in the prison, and there was about a dozen inmates ready for Charlie to teach them the scripture. And Charlie explained to them, I have no idea what to tell you. Um, I, I don't know how to teach a Bible study. Well, the inmate handed him a copy of the devotional, The Daily Bread. And said, just read for us uh, this day's devotion. Charlie didn't know at the time that about half the inmates at the Bible study were illiterate. And couldn't even read that devotion. So he did. He read the devotion. And that day's devotion, the lesson was on how God forgives sin and saves sinners. So he finished reading the devotional. And he looked up and several of the inmates in the room said, we want to do that. And Charlie said, do what? They said, well, we we want to be saved by God. How do we do that? 
And of course, Charlie had no idea how to answer. In fact, he, he would testify. He began to pray silently, God, please work through me. And as soon as he had finished that prayer, almost as if the prayer was answered, he was paged over the intercom to the nurse's station. And so Charlie left to the nurse, and, and while he was with her, another inmate approached him who happened to be cleaning out his cell for he was to be released from prison the next day. And he handed Charlie a bookmark, and he said, you might need this. The bookmark was from the Gideons, and on top of the bookmark, it read, How to Be Saved. And so Charlie walked back to his Bible study, now armed with this bookmark, and simply read it to them. Number one, admit you're a sinner. Number two, believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sin and was raised from the dead. Number three, call out to God for forgiveness and for salvation. When he had finished reading the bookmark, four inmates prayed to receive Christ as their savior. Four more prisoners were set free. The very first day of being a Christ follower, Charlie led four men to faith in Jesus. Now I wonder if you were to ask Charlie while he was committing his financial crimes, hey Charlie, do you see how God's working in your life right now? I assume he would say, no, I don't see it anywhere. In fact, if, when he was arrested and standing trial for his financial crimes, if you were to ask him, do you see how God's working in your life? I would imagine he would say, no, I don't, I don't see God anywhere in this situation. The day he was driving into prison where he would spend the next four years, I wonder if he asked Charlie, do you see God working in your life? He would say, no, I don't see God's hand anywhere. And yet we look back on his life and he can now, from hindsight, testify, you see, God was working in every step of the way. Really, my friends, that's the story of Esther. The story of Esther is not a celebration of of Mordecai's cunning uh, wisdom. It's not a celebration of uh, Esther's courage. It's, It's not a story about lots of luck and coincidences. It's a story that God works and delivers his people. And sometimes God does so through mighty acts, as we see in Scripture. But most of the time, what God, the way God works is through normal circumstances. So we read the book of Exodus, and we see God sending plagues and parting the seas, right? And we see God working there. But we read the book of Esther, and he's no less working, but his work is in many ways invisible. It's hidden. And therefore, we can't really see him. But the truth is, he's working nevertheless, even in troubling times which, of course, the Jews in Persia in the 5th century B.C. were experiencing. The power of Persia was evident to everyone. We saw it last week, didn't we? We've seen opulent wealth. We've seen powerful armies. We've seen a controlling king. We've seen a a corrupt system. And, And these Jews, a religious minority, are living in a very oppressive culture. And the question is, how do you live as a religious minority in a in a place like this? It's a question that's I think increasingly Christians need to ask as we live in a post Christian day. How do we live as a religious minority? And many people, many well-meaning Christians have said, we need to withdraw. We need to kind of circle the wagons and pull back and, and wait this out. Other Christians have said, well, no, we need to fit in, right? Let's keep our views kind of close to the chest, and we don't need to talk so much about it. We'll just kind of go along with the ride. Still, there's a third group of Christians that says, no, we need to protest everything. We need to yell and scream and get red in the face and tip over tables. And I wonder if there's another option. In fact, I think Esther kind of shows us another option is how we live in this situation. And I I think this book would suggest that we have a wonderful and powerful trust in God working in these difficult situations. So what we're going to do in the book of Esther, we're going to watch God work. 
We're going to watch God move very flawed people into the right place at the right time and continue to build his kingdom, continue to advance his plans, and continue to show himself faithful to his steadfast love. God is in control, is the story of Esther. The king is not. Now, if you remember last week, we saw that we're supposed to be impressed with this king, King Xerxes. I mean, he sits upon a throne, he throws 180-day-long parties, he has obscene wealth, he is ruling over the largest empire the world had ever known to that day. And yet what we see today is that this great king who rules the world cannot rule his own home. In fact, he can't even rule his own heart. In fact, Matthew Henry would say some time ago, "He he that had rule over 127 provinces has no rule over his own spirit. And uh, this will, uh, I think, be very evident for us, as we saw last week, that last time this king throw this six-month party to show off his wealth, show off his power, uh, show that, that he is uh, the, the, the greatest man uh, the world has ever known to impress all the people who were gathered together. Uh, we're not quite sure as to what his ultimate goal was, at least from Scripture. Why does he want to impress all these people? Is it simply vanity? Well, I'm sure something, that has something to do with it. But we do know from Herodotus, the great Greek historian, that in the fourth year of Xerxes' reign, he invaded Greece. Esther tells us this party takes place in the third year of his reign, right before he would attack Greece. We're also told by Herodotus that King Xerxes gives this incredible speech to his noblemen in order to consolidate their support of an invasion of Europe. Herodotus records his speech. I think it's helpful to consider as it gives us insight into uh, Xerxes' life. For he said, It is my intent to punish the Athenians for what they have done to the Persians and to my father. You saw that Darius, my father, was set on making an expedition against these men, but he is dead, and it was not granted to him to punish them. On behalf of On his behalf, and that of all Persians, I will never rest until I have taken Athens and burnt it for the unprovoked wrong that its people did to my father. I am resolved to send an army against them, make the the borders of Persia and the firmament of heaven be the same. No land that the sun beholds will border ours, but I will make all into one country when I have passed over the whole of Europe. No city or any human nation which is able to meet us in battle will be left. Note this, this is how he concludes this great speech. Thus the guilty and the innocent uh, will alike bear the yoke of slavery. He says, I'm going to conquer everyone, I don't care if you're guilty, I don't care if you're innocent, They all will become our slaves. And at this point in his great speech, he turns then to his noblemen and challenges them to support this worldwide uh, ambition to conquer the world. He says, this is how you would best please me when I declare the time for your coming. Every one of you must eagerly appear. And whoever comes with his army best equipped will receive from me such gifts as are reckoned most precious among us. And so he makes this great speech, which is going to consolidate his power and, and enable him to attack uh, over into Greece in just a year. Now, many people think the reason he's throwing this party is that he makes this speech at this party in order to get everybody on the same board. See, the party's designed to show I could do whatever I want. 
The party's designed to show I have no rival. My wealth is, is unparalleled. I, I will rule the world. I can defeat any nation. And yet what we see here is that he himself is defeated by his wife. As you consider scene number one in our passage this morning, the king's drunken request. Look, consider verse 9. We read, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So while this whole party is going along uh, on one part of the palace, the queen is hosting a separate party for the, the wives of the dignitaries and all the rest. Uh, we're not told exactly why, but perhaps it was because they were aware the men were going to get a little rowdy, as you know in verse 10, on the seventh day when the king's heart was merry with wine. Now, if you remember last week, we, we saw that the king actually passed a law governing drinking at his party. And he said, listen, you come to my party, you could drink as little as you want, or you could drink as much as you want. Well, evidently, the king Xerxes went for the as much as you want plan. And we find him now merry with wine. In other words, he is drunk. He should have read the book of Proverbs, which tells us it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. In other words, what the Bible is telling us is that drinking, and especially drinking in excess, doesn't make you smarter. When people get drunk, they think they're smarter, but they're not. And they wake up wondering why they're on the floor and who hit them in the head. Okay? It's not a blessing to them to get to this point. You make bad decisions when you're drunk. I don't know of anyone who says, when I get drunk, that's when I'm really thinking clearly. Uh, that's when it's not the time to make decisions, as we're, of course, told in the Bible never to get drunk. But here's this man who is drunk, and he's going to make a really bad decision. As he gathers his eunuchs, he has an errand for them, as we read on in verse 10. Uh, we read, he commanded Mehumam, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abaktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus. I just want to note, if you're looking for maybe a, a kid's name, a unique kid's name, here's a really good list for you. Uh, I kind of like Bigtha. So uh, that, sound, that sounds like a cool guy, uh, you know, like a Persian hip-hop artist or something like that. You might want to go Bigtha. Stay away from Carcass, though, okay? That's probably not the best name. Now, you're wondering, why, why do we even have these names? Why are they li- listed? Why does he list the eunuchs? Well, you, they're listed because the Bible is dealing with history. These are real people. This is a real time. This is not fable. This is, uh, this is not fiction. This actually happened. And so he gathers these men. In fact, he gathers seven of them why, uh, to send them to the queen. We might wonder, why does he need seven people to go uh, with this request to the queen? It is perhaps because she is going to need some persuasion. As you see in verse 11, his request is recorded to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. The king wants his queen to come so that all of his drunken friends can gawk at her. Vashti was beautiful, we're told. Her name means, in fact, the name Vashti means desirable. And so he wanted to show her off like a trophy, some, some, uh, some object. Right, so this is not a husband saying, uh, uh, calling for his wife and saying, listen, we're having a wonderful time over here at the men's grill and uh, it would just be lovely if you could come by and say hello to the, to the boys before they have to go home. That's not what's happening here. He says, hey, guys, you want to see my hot wife? 
Uh, she's really, really beautiful. Do you want a little show? In fact, we're told there in verse uh, 11 that she was to come wearing her crown. Well, the ancient Jewish Midrash, which is a commentary on the Old Testament, has argued that the king is commanding her to come only with her crown and nothing else. And you can see what kind of despicable uh, request this is. I wonder, ladies, does this sound like fun to you when husband wanting to parade you in front of a couple thousand drunk men. And this is what his request is for her. And you might conclude, man, these guys are a bunch of perverts. And you'd be right. I mean, this is a a sick and despicable request. My suggestion would be that uh, I'm not sure we're any better. And if you want proof of that, head down to Cancun on spring break, head to New Orleans and Mardi Mardi Gras, Go to Las Vegas anytime, right? Turn on the computer, and you will find that we still parade women as objects of our desire. We do so now largely, don't we, digitally. And in fact, I would suggest that for many, many guys, the only difference between Xerxes and them is income level. We just don't have the money to do what Xerxes did, but we still use women. We, instead of loving them and respecting them, the whole marketing systems are based upon this. And let me just say Xerxes' lineage continues. Xerxes has many sons, and many of them live today. And you can almost imagine this, this party getting out of hand now. They've been going at it for quite some while. It's an open bar, and you could imagine them begin to chant, Go get the queen! Go get the queen! Go get the queen! And this, of course, is the grand finale of the party, isn't it? He's been throwing this thing for six months now. And he's, he declares, hey, go get my wife Vashti that I may further show my incredible stature by everyone looking at my stunning wife. Well, we see her answer in verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. As we turn now to scene number two, the queen's defiant refusal. She says, it ain't happening. There's no way I'm going. Now, please understand, for her to refuse King Xerxes was an incredible act of bravery. This is an act of defiance to an incredibly ruthless man. And, of course, uh, this is quite a blow to his ego. I mean, he has been doing his best to show everyone, I'm the king of the world. I I have an army in the millions. I sit on a throne. I drink from gold goblets. I throw six-month-long parties. Go get my wife. Um, She says, no, she ain't coming. And there might be just a little point of application for us here, in particular for my sisters in Christ, that submission to your husband does not mean having to do things that are degrading and dishonoring. And that your husband, if he's asking you to dishonor our Lord, you are not to submit to him at those times. In fact, your husband has a higher authority, doesn't he? Just as King Xerxes did. And that authority is to be obeyed. And I think we all would applaud Vashti for saying, no, I'm not going to do this. And even to do this to a very ruthless man. Again, history has told us quite a bit about King Xerxes. We know on one occasion that he attempted to seduce his sister-in-law. And when she refused his advances, he had her husband, which was his brother, tortured to death. On another occasion, he had a dear friend named Pythias who gave an, an enormous amount of money to King Xerxes to fund his army. 
But when it came time to go to battle, Pythias requested that his oldest son be exempt from military conquest. This uh, military uh, service. This enraged the king. He actually had the son cut in half and and forced his army to march between the pieces of this um, now murdered son. This man, historically we know, is arrogant, he's quick-tempered, and he is utterly ruthless. And you see from our text, he's now furious. For we read on in verse 12, and we see, At this time the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. All right, so now he's both drunk and angry. Because, of course, he, is now, he has been humiliated. Right? I mean, the queen, uh, please understand, this man had a harem. Uh, we'll see this very clearly in chapter 2. Hundreds of women at his beck and call. The queen was not a uh, confidant to him. The, the queen was not a, a counselor, a friend. Uh, she had one job, and her job was to make the king, king look good. Of course, she's doing the exact opposite. I mean, this is the grand finale, isn't it? I mean, he was showing off all his treasure, his wealth, his power. And now for the main attraction, everybody gazed upon my beautiful wife, and the curtains open, and she's nowhere to be seen. She doesn't come. I mean, this man has piles of riches, rules the world's largest empire, limitless wine, sits on gold couches, generals and governors bow before him, and he doesn't know how to handle the missus, right? Some of you guys out there are saying, well, that explains my whole life. I don't, that, it's challenging, and he's here, of course, threatened by her, isn't he? You think, what could threaten the mighty king of Persia? What could cause him fear? A woman. I mean, you you could, I think, imagine the servants bringing him the news, whispering in the king's ear. Um, I'm sorry, your highness, but she says she's not coming. What do you mean she's not coming? I'm the king of Persia. I rule the world. Yeah, but she says it ain't happening. Right? And this, of course, leads to his great public humiliation. And his anger, his anger burns within him. And, and yet, before we uh, cast too many disparaging looks upon King Xerxes, we might once again recognize he is a, a, a good mirror for us to see our own sinful tendencies. I wonder when people wrong you, at least when you feel slighted, are you ever prone to anger? Are you ever prone to vengeance? Or are you, as Scripture counsels us, quick to forgive? Are you quick to forgive or do you not keep a record of wrongs, as the Bible tells us? You're not going to hold on to grudges? I think we are reminded here um, of our own sin. And as we are, we should be reminded of another truth. And that is that no one has ever sinned against you more than you have sinned against a holy and perfect God. And every act of sin is an act of defiance to his authority and to his grace in your life. And God, of course, has every right to be offended with us, doesn't he? He has every right to be angry with us. And yet for those who are in Christ, we find him instead full of compassion and grace. As he has described himself, he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so may we gaze upon how God treats us with utter kindness and patience so that we might find the strength to treat treat others in the same way. Well, the counselors uh, now come, of course, with this recommendation as we turn to scene number three. The counselors 
daft recommendation. You see it here in verse 13. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in the law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Sethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meriz, Marcina, and Memicon, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. Right, you see what he's doing, he's calling his counselors together. And he says to these guys, hey guys, I don't know how to control my wife. Right? I don't know how to manage these things. I mean, this is, of course, utterly, utterly ridiculous, isn't it? Um, and uh, he, he, everything's out of control, and he, he gets these wise men together. And I think what we are reading, if you allow, I think it's actually rather humorous. I think this is satire. It's making the king look the fool that he is. He calls these wise men together. In fact, as, as we'll see, his wise men are, are, are more like Larry, uh, Curly, and Moe. I mean, these are a bunch of adults, and yet this is his entire cabinet. I mean, he has been royally embarrassed by the missus now, and so he dismisses himself from the banquet, calls a royal conference, grabs his greatest princes, and, and he needs to deal, of course, with this now dangerous threat to the empire. And the first order of business, as we see, is to review the minutes. As note verse 15, according to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? All right, why? Well, we, because we've seen, because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, which, of course, was delivered by the eunuchs. Okay, what we know the king, queen, let's just establish the facts. We know the queen has refused the king's demand to parade herself in front of drunken men. We've got the witnesses. We've written it down. We're forming a committee, right? This is all very serious. In fact, it seems like it's leading to some international crisis, according to these men. As we see in verse 16, then Memicon said, in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. Right? So you see the fear here. I mean, these guys are freaking out because the queen's just say no policy is going to spread throughout the entire kingdom, right? It's going to spread to our homes and everybody's homes. We clearly have a crisis on our hands. Our, our wives are going to hear about this, and they're going, to, they're going to go on strike. There's going to be total anarchy. We're not going to be able to rule in our homes like the kings we want to be, because when the queen said no to you, king, all of a sudden the, real, the women of this land realize, well, we kind of like that word. No. That's a good word. We didn't know we were allowed to say that word. And they're all, even to this very moment, practicing it for when we get home. That is a potential national disaster in their mind. And so they say, okay, king, this is what we need to do. According to verse 19, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. And here's the two things that the law will do. Number one, that Vashti is never to come before King Ahasuerus. So first law, first rule, we're going to banish the queen. 
Now, again, you have to see the humor in this, I think, the total irony, because the king sends word to Vashti, the king wants to see you. She says, no thanks, I don't want to see him. The king responds, well, you can never see me, which, which of course, is exactly what she wants. Right? She, he's actually giving her what she longs for. Like, her punishment is she can never see him again. It'd be like me telling my kids, you're punished, eat your ice cream. Okay? They'd be like, uh, okay, we'll do it. Uh, and that's what's happening here. Uh, you, she's getting exactly what she wants. And then the second rule we find here is that she is going to be replaced according to this edict, as we read on in verse 19, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. I don't think it takes much imagination for us to realize what they mean by better than she. Uh, What they want is a woman who remains silent and does what she is told. Of course, the Bible tells us that wives are a helpmate. They're a counselor. They're a friend. They're a partner. And yet the king wants one who will never give her opinion he doesn't want a helper in any way. All he's looking for, really, is a, an attractive, obedient pet, one that does what he says when he says it. Of course, the king doesn't need a new queen. What he needs to do is to repent. What he ought to do is to apologize. And he ought to go to his wife and say, Honey, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have been drunk, and, and I, I shouldn't have been with those guys. And they all started to kind of pressure me, hey, go get your wife, go get the queen. And I was afraid of what they would think if I said no. And I I gave in to the fear of man, and I didn't honor you. I I totally dishonored you. I'm sorry for what I've done. Can we work this out? Will you please forgive me? And, of course, if he would have done that, I mean, this would have been on the road to reconciliation. The problem would eventually be over. And I wonder if this is the path we take when we are the one who sins. Are we quick to repent of our sin? It doesn't matter, it seems to me, whether you're in authority or not. It doesn't matter if you're the husband. It doesn't matter if you're the boss. It doesn't matter if you're the parent. It doesn't matter if you're the pastor. It doesn't matter if you're the governor. It doesn't matter if you're the president. It doesn't matter if you're the king. When we sin, we ought to repent. Instead, I think it's easy to realize that the king does the exact opposite. He just simply defends himself, which is what unrepentant people do. You do it, I do it. We're all very versed in this. We're we're good at building our own cases. You can imagine him saying, listen, I'm the king. And, and, And what would she have without me? I have given her everything. I've given her a life of luxury and servants and life in a palace. I mean, I, 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 everything she has comes from my hand. And, and she needs to obey me, especially when it's public in front of other people. I mean, after all, how am I supposed to rule this kingdom with any sense of dignity if she's humiliating me like this? In fact, her influence is going to spread to the whole country and lead to quite a bit of anarchy and unsettlement and destroying our very culture. It sounds like a pretty good case. I mean, we're good at defending ourselves. We're good at deceiving ourselves. We have an enemy who helps us, don't we, that will deceive us. I wonder if there's anything, my brothers and sisters in Hamilton Baptist Church, is there any area in your life in which you need to repent, and yet pride is keeping you from doing so. Will you not humble yourself seeing what God has done for you and go to that person and say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? 
Sadly, none of that happens as we turn to scene number four. The empire's dishonorable rule. As you look in verse 21, we read, This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memicon proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in his own script, and to every people in its own language. Let every man be master of his own household and speak, and speak according to the language of his people. So there's this new law, once again passed, and the law declares, what, according to verse 22, every man the master of his home. Now, it's, I think it's easy to imagine guys getting this edict in the mail and being rather excited about it, right? I mean, they're thinking, this is what I needed, an edict from the king. I'm the master of my home. You can see them putting it up on the refrigerator, making copies, you know, uh, taping it up there on the bathroom mirror. Every man, the master of his home. Whenever a marital argument comes up, right, all he has to do is point to the edict Hey, honey, the king says, I'm the master of my own. Some of you guys are thinking, there's my life verse. I found it, right? And here it is. As the king issues, I need a copy of that edict. Well, of course, all this does is further show the folly of this kingdom. And we're meant to laugh at this king. Because he is passing a law that he cannot even enforce himself in his own home. He evidently is not the master in his home as he anticipates. And now he's demanding that it happen in everybody else's home. And, and, and by the way, what are people supposed to do when, they follow, uh, when their wives follow Queen Vashti's uh, example and say, no, are, is everybody supposed to banish their wife uh, like the, the king does and go and get another one? Of course not. It's, it's utter lunacy. And in fact, you think about the entire weight of the empire. Think about the amount of money that must have gone into making sure that this edict was passed on to all 127 provinces, to every region and every home in the empire. You think the American census is hard to pull off. Can you imagine the resources that are being used throughout the empire, all the intricate systems of horses and dispatch riders and all the huffing and puffing and door knocking all the, uh, to the vast and distant provinces of Persia? And you think, all this work, all this uh, effort, what's actually being accomplished? I mean, what's actually being done? I think the only thing that's being achieved is that the king is now publicizing to the entire nation in every language that he has no control over his wife as he wants to. One commentator puts it this way. If he was afraid that the story of his impotence would spread through gossip, now his own edict has done its best to ensure that everyone would hear the story. Once again, we find it hard to restrain a chuckle. And it is laughable in a sad sense because I think, once again, we see a reflection of our societies today. I think this is, in many ways, if you will allow me to say so, the story of government. Right? I think quite often we look around this world and the people who wield power often do so with more enthusiasm than wisdom. And the reins of power are often controlled by the incompetent. And uh, as this case tells us, also the immoral. Of course, we know, don't we, as we pray for them often, that many of our Christian brothers and sisters are, are living in situations where uh, in, in the Capitol building a dictator is ruling. And, and those who don't live in those places are under uh, perhaps a local dictator, some uh, drug cartel or street gang, uh, that those who have power are often immoral. As, as one pastor put it, the world is a dangerous place 
where power and wisdom are frequently unconnected. And I, I think that's true. And I would just add to that, that power and morality are often unconnected. And I think we see this increasingly in our own great country, in our own land, don't we? And let me just remind us then, just because something is legal doesn't mean it's pleasing to God. Adultery may not be a crime, but let's just recognize it is a sin against our God. Lying's not a crime, but it is a sin against our God, and we could go on and on. So uh, as the king tries to spread his word and enforce it, let us recognize that there is a higher law that has spread. I mean, many of you are holding it in your hands this very moment, as I am. This is a perfect and unchanging law, and we are, of course, to live according to God's edicts. As we turn lastly to the Lord's discreet reign. The Lord's discreet reign. You might think all this, of course, is very interesting. Uh, but what, what does the decree of, uh, of a king in Persia some 2,500 years ago have anything to do with us here in the 21st century in northern Virginia? Right? In, in fact, not only does it, what does it have to do with us, What does it have to do with the Jews who are actually living in his kingdom? I mean, what do they care about any of this? I mean, do they really think that a change in the queen and a squabble in the palace has any relevance in their life whatsoever? I mean, what does that have to do with the price of tea in the market? How does this impact us? They must have said, this has nothing to do with us. We don't even care in the slightest. And yet, when we see the end of the story, what do we see? That it has everything to do with them. They just can't see it yet. You see, my friends, we often have to wait in order to see what God is doing. Just because we can't see him doesn't mean he's not working. And we look around, and it all looks chaotic, and it all looks like it's anarchy, and it looks like there's, we, we, we don't know which way we're going and how this is going to work out, and in, and in what way can this even possibly be for our good? Where we're in the midst of it, it's impossible to see, right? But it's once we get out of it, we can look back and say, okay, now I see the hand of God. When I, when I was living in it, I couldn't see it, but now I see it. That's the story of Esther, right? I mean, Esther's not even mentioned yet in this book, the, the, the character that the, the, uh, bears uh, her name as the title, and yet everything is going according to God's plan, and God's going to use the king's wickedness and, and Vashti's refusal to establish Esther's reign, In other words, before we are even aware there is a problem, before there is even a problem, we see God is already at work to fix it through what looks like seemingly irrelevant events. Perhaps you have heard the proverb that large doors swing on small hinges. And we read this book, we see throughout Esther, there looks like these little small irrelevant events that don't look to be significant in any way, and yet, because they happen, incredible things are, are taking place. In fact, if, if you would read this book without an eye for God, it would just look like a, a book full of chance, wouldn't it? A book full of coincidence. I appreciate what Mark Dever does in reviewing this book. He says the king just happens to throw a party. Just happens to be, uh, have this drunken demand for Vashti, who just happens to say no, who just happens to lead her to being deposed and a new queen sought. 
And Esther just happens to be Jewish, and she just happens to be beautiful, and she just happens to be favored by the king. And Mordecai just happens to overhear the plot against the king's life, and a report of this just happens to be written in the king's chronicles. Haman just happens to notice that Mordecai doesn't bow, and he just happens to discover that Mordecai is Jewish. Esther just happens to get, on the, uh, get the king's approval to speak to him, but then just happens to put off her request for another day, and her, t- her deferral just happens to send Haman out by Mordecai one last time, which just happens to get him all riled up again, and just happens that he will go and recount all his anger to his friends, and they just happen to encourage him to build a scaffold immediately. And so Haman just happens to be very excited when he approaches the king the next morning, and it just so happens that the previous night, the king could not get a moment's sleep, and so he just happens to have a book brought to him that recounted Mordecai's deeds, and he just happens to ask whether Mordecai was rewarded for that, to which his his attendant just happens to know the answer. Well, Haman just happens to approach the king when the king is wondering how Mordecai should be honored, and later on, the king just happens to return to the queen when Haman just happens to be pleading with her in a way that can be misstrewed, and the gallows built for Mordecai just happens to be ready when King Xerxes wants to hang Haman. Right? All this just happening? I don't think so. You see what's going on? All this is written to show how God is working. That when we can't see him, we don't perceive his hands, we will uh, one day see his fingerprints all over the place. The Bible tells us the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And so the king goes about his business, and yet the Lord rules over it all. My friends, this is called divine providence. And it is the main point of the book of Esther. It is a point to which we will return over and over again, that God is ruling, God has been ruling, God continues to rule, and he does so when we cannot see it. This is so important for us to affirm, for many do not, many in this world are what are called deists. They remove God from creation. They believe God uh, winds up the clock and sets it there on the table and walks away from creation, never having anything more to do with it, and we're utterly on our own. On the other end of the uh, spectrum is a very popular belief today called pantheism, though many don't realize they hold to it. and They don't remove God from creation. They confuse God with creation. And they say God is everywhere. God, God, everything's God. And if you look inside yourself there, you will find God too. And the Bible says both those extremes are utter nonsense. The Bible says God has made this world but it, and is separate from it. It's not to be confused with it, but has not abandoned it either and rules over it. In spite of appearances, this is God's providence. And I, and I think this is so incredibly relevant for you uh, and me today as we walk through the, the, the life in which we've been given and the days in which we live. That this, this divine providence ought to lead, Christian, to hope in your life. So we read the Bible, we see, we see God you know, part the sea and we go, wow, look, God's working, he's amazing. But we read a story like this, and King Xerxes gets drunk, and how many of us go, wow, God's amazing. Well, see, the book of Esther is written to help us, right, to not make that mistake, 
that the king, because the king's drunk request leads to the protection of his people, that God is working powerfully when we see him. We're amazed at that. Yet God, God is continually working, though we can't see him, and we are tempted to think he's not working. I can't see God, and therefore I don't believe he is working. And Esther is written to tell us it's not true. We need to hope that even in this day, in our life, God is indeed working providentially and powerfully. I so appreciate the ministry of Samuel Rutherford, a 17th century Scottish pastor who has left a legacy of letters that he wrote to his congregation. And one uh, long correspondence he had with a, a woman in his church concerned the fact that her marriage was an utter disaster and that she was living in great despair and sadness. In one of his letters, Rutherford wrote to her saying, Madam, when ye come to the other side of the water and have set down your foot on the shore of glorious eternity and look back to your wearisome journey and shall see God's wisdom, ye shall then be forced to say, If God had done otherwise with me than he hath done, I had never come to the enjoying of this crown of glory. He counsels her, saying, It is your part now to believe and suffer and hope and wait on. Whether God come to his children with a rod or with a crown, if he come himself with it, it is well. Welcome, welcome, Jesus What way soever thou come, if we can get sight of thee. And sure I am, it is better to be sick, providing Christ come to the bedside and say, Courage, I am thy salvation, than to enjoy health and never to be visited by God. You see, his point is that we will look back upon our lives, back upon our day, Yes, indeed, back upon history itself and see how God has worked powerfully, wonderfully, and gloriously. But we can only see it in hindsight. Now, while we walk through it, we trust and we hope. Which is why, my brothers and sisters, it is always wrong to be angry with God because he's not working in your life. How do you know? He's not working. How could you possibly know what he's doing, how he's working, right? I mean, no one looked at this king and said it's a good idea that he got drunk and started bragging about his wife. No one would have said that. And yet, we look back on it and we see, okay, now I see how God was working. You never see it when you're in it. Right? And, and, and how many of us, if we just look now, even at the life we've lived, and we look into our past, and we see one little circumstance, some, some little event, that and, and at the time we would never have paid much importance to, and yet it changed the entire course of our life. Maybe some tragedy even has brought us to a new place in our life that we would not think that we would, we would end up being. And we can look back and see, oh, how I now see how God was guiding and how God was leading, although I couldn't see it at the time. See, there are things God is doing in your life. I guarantee it from the authority of Scripture that God is working in your life. And he is doing so many things you have no idea about. And so what must we do? We must trust him and we must hope. For God's silence does not mean he is absent. 
See, divine providence tells us we ought to hope, but it does more than that. It ought to lead to boldness in our life. If you want a second application, you and I ought to be bold because of the doctrine of divine providence. Because if God is ruling in in your life, what that means is where you are and when you are is for a reason. It is not... It's not chance, it's not fate, it's divine providence. You're in that workplace for a reason. You're in that neighborhood for a reason. You're in that hospital for a reason. God is ruling in your life. So you can be confident and bold in your interactions. You could go into life saying, okay, God, I'm going here or I'm doing this and I'm here for a reason. Help me to to recognize what's going on. Help every conversation I have uh, now to to be about um, what you're doing and, and that I might be encouraging to people that I might pray that you, God, would use me in order to accomplish your plan that you have for me. I I just think if you lay hold of this truth, it ought to lead to an exhilaration in your life. It ought to be this just growing joy in your life. What What has God planned for me today? Where will he lead me? How will he use me? See, divine providence leads to boldness and leads to hope. And lastly, let me say, divine providence leads to worship. It leads to joyful worship. Like when you live in Persia, if you will, when the world stands in opposition to your faith, you can still worship. You can still be filled with joy. You can still praise God with gladness in your hearts. And what we're tempted to do is we are to read the news and it is all trouble. I mean, there's like no good news. We, we, we consider the allurements of the world and all the trinkets that capture our heart's attention. We, we, we become increasingly dismayed at the direction of our great country. And yet, even in the midst of all that, don't you see, we need not despair. Right? We can still joyfully worship in Persia because our Lord reigns. In in other words, God's providence is not simply a doctrine for us to affirm, for us to mentally agree. It is the basis of our hope, the basis of a bold life. It is the basis for joyful worship. I ask you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, who is like our God? And, and, and he is our God, and we are his people, and no government threatens his reign, no king jeopardizes his power, no movement menaces his control, no cultural uh, decree or evolution will displace his plan. And even as the world's rebellion grows stronger day by day, and when the next pandemic comes along, and it's worse than the last, let us, the people of God keep on singing. Let us keep on praising our great God. You say, why? I tell you, because God is ruling. He sits upon his throne. He reigns over this earth. You don't see it, but we can affirm it because his scripture teaches it. He reigns for our good. Let that be the controlling truth in your life. Not the troubles you live in. Not the difficulties of this day. Do not let the circumstance of life take your eyes off the throne in heaven from which your God sits this very day. He is greater than any King Xerxes. And he reigns over it all. Do you 
In fact, I don't know if you can see the parallels between King Xerxes and Jesus, even from this passage. I was talking to my children last night. I said, where do you see Jesus? And we are delighted to discover that just like King Xerxes, one day Jesus also will summon his bride to a banquet. Of course, the Bible tells us that the bride of Christ is the church. We are the bride of Christ. He is the bridegroom. And one day he's going to summon us to his feast, not to expose us to shame, but to lavish us with grace. He'll never force a sinner to come unwillingly to his feast. But he does invite sinners and does so with sacrificial love. You know, Vashti, I think it's very clear, was right in rejecting King Xerxes' invitation. But no one would be right in rejecting God's. No one would be right saying to the creator of the universe, the one who made them, the one who sustains them, the one who provides every single thing that they have, to say, I will not come to receive the mercy of my creator. I will not come to receive the love of a savior. And yet so many people do over and over and over again because their hearts are proud like Xerxes and they will not repent. They will not bow a knee to King Jesus. I tell you, based upon the authority of God's word, if you refuse to come to King Jesus, I'm afraid he will banish you from his presence as well. Those are the two options we have before us. You can, on one hand, feast at the king's banquet as his beloved forever, or you can be banished forever from the very one who would give up his life for you. For that's what he's done, hasn't he? He hasn't treated us as a beautiful object that seeks to feed his pride. In fact, it's, it couldn't be more the reverse. He actually found us, if you will, completely unappealing, rebellious and sinful. And yet he gave away his life for us anyway out of great and unimaginable love for us, and with such a bridegroom calling. Why would anyone refuse that invitation? I wonder, even now, do you hear him calling you? Do you hear him beckoning you? My brother and sister in Christ, perhaps you have wandered off, and you're chasing after foreign lovers. You're chasing after this or that, engaged in that sin, being rebellious in this way. Do you hear him calling to you? Say, won't you come to me? Come back to me that you may feast in my presence. And perhaps there may be someone who's um, watching this sermon and you've never come to Jesus. You've never bowed your knee to a Savior who loves you so much that he would die for you to pay all of your sin, all that you've done in the past and doing in the present and doing in the future and rose victoriously from the dead so you might live forever with him. And now he stretches out his nail-pierced hands, holding out for you grace and mercy. And all you must do is receive it by faith if you will surrender to King Jesus. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for our Lord and the great work that he has done We are thankful that one day he shall call us home and and we shall uh, be at that, as your scripture calls, the wedding feast of the Lamb and shall be with them forevermore.
Will you fill our hearts with overwhelming desire to see our Lord and to be with him and even to please him as we live this life? And yet, uh, will, you, will you not just simply help, about, help us think about how we live our own life? Will you help us have eyes to see how you are ruling in our lives and in our day? And, uh, Father, it is, we live in a difficult day, a day unlike any that we have experienced, a day of uncertainty, a day of fear, a, a day of uh, economic hardship, a day of um, difficult domestic relationships. It's a, unique challenges and troubles. And, and we look around and we say, How's, how could this possibly be for good? And yet we know, do we not, that you are reigning, even in the year 2020. Do you reign over this land? And therefore, your people, in light of these truths, can be filled with hope and boldness and, yes, joyful worship to our King. Help us to do so even now as we close our service, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.